Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Zachary Leonard, and I am the Volume 74 Executive Communications Editor, and I'm here joined by the incoming Executive Communications Editor, Victor. Victor, you want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Victor Q, and I am the incoming Executive Communications Editor for Volume 75 of the UC Law SF Journal. Yeah, thanks, Victor. And I think you point out something that we're very excited to be that's happening soon is that we will be transitioning away from Hastings Law Journal and embracing our new name, the new school's name, uh, the University of California College of the Law, San Francisco Law Journal. So we're very excited to be making that transition happen. And we're also excited to, to bring you episode two of the podcast. I think we have a lot of great interviews lined up today. I'm really excited. Yes, we have a lot of great professors, a lot of great articles that we want to share with you. Yeah, you know, so today's theme is all about cryptocurrency. And I know that's like a big buzzword, um, especially in the past few years. I, I don't even think I knew what cryptocurrency was before I started law school. And it's crazy how it's grown and um, really become a topic of major conversation. So we're excited to kind of interview a few different a few different authors get a few different perspectives and also highlight just kind of the, the the breadth of knowledge that you can get from from reading all the issues of of the journal. Yeah, it's a very highly relevant topic these days and we hear it in our everyday lives in the news, maybe in family at the dinner table um, with friends and we see there's regulatory issues every day with it and news new um, Bitcoin information and news popping up. Yeah, definitely. Also, some some recent current events. You know, the FTX crash, the 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 bank, the recent bank failures with um, Silicon Valley Bank, and um, you know, just the the kind of economic um, uncertainty that we're in right now. I think this is a, a very relevant topic. So we have three different articles that we are really excited to interview today, um, and and. Like Victor mentioned, we'll start with some of the maybe the regulatory issues, discuss some of those and leading all the way into um, the ways that that cryptocurrency creates um, financial issues for for asset trading, even among children. Um, So really a breadth of knowledge. And I'm excited to get started. Me too. Great. So with that, we will um, go ahead and welcome in our first guest. We are so excited to welcome our first guest on the podcast this year. Uh, We are we have a a few different guests who have written on this topic of cryptocurrency that we think our listeners are going to be very excited to hear from. But I'm very excited to speak with our first guest. Um, Darian Abraham is the Taswell Taylor Professor of Law at William & Mary, where he writes about the intersection of law and entrepreneurship, including angel investing, venture capital, and now digital currency. Um, His article, A Tokenized Future, Regulatory Lessons from Crowdfunding and Standard Form Contracts, is in Volume 74, Issue 1 of Hastings Law Journal. We're very excited to feature him today on the podcast. We're very excited for you to read his article. Um, If if you can join me in welcoming Victor, Darian Ibrahim. Darian, so nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. So thrilled uh, that you guys published the article and want to talk to me more about it. Yeah, we we can't wait to hear hear more about it. So Victor has um, the first question. I'll let him kick it off. Thanks. And so you're the first guest on this episode of the podcast and the term cryptocurrency is constantly making headlines these days. So can you share and give us an overview of what cryptocurrency actually is? 
Yeah, so it's it's a great question, and I, I you know, I I almost think you have to be a little bit of a computer scientist to really understand what's going on. But to the extent of how I think of it, right, is there's this blockchain technology, which is basically a digital ledger that um, the blockchain is kind of the advent or the the invention and the cryptocurrency, as we talk about it, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, that's the native token that allows you to participate on that blockchain. Um, in terms of Ethereum, you almost you have to spend Ethereum in order to participate on the blockchain. Bitcoin is just the native token of that blockchain. And the way it works, at least in because the, they're all different, right? But in terms of Bitcoin is we have this blockchain and it's a digital ledger and people can take this native asset and transfer it back and forth on there, whether you want to call it digital currency, digital gold, if a lot of people aren't using it, but just holding it. But you're supposed to be able to transfer it back and forth with no centralized party determining like who has what. So if I use Wells Fargo or Venmo or PayPal and send you money, right? The ledger is maintained by PayPal or Venmo and they see, do I have the money and do you get it? With the blockchain, we take out that intermediary, at least in a truly decentralized blockchain, and that's going to become a topic of conversation. Um, but that's what I think of it. And the currencies that I talk about in the paper, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, are are kind of the assets that allow you to participate on that blockchain. Does that make it, sense? It does. And it's it's wild how you said each one is different. Like all of them are basically different ledgers, maybe have, have um, different aspects about them. So it really makes it interesting because, you know, you're talking about regulation in your paper. And maybe this is a good time to move on to that, which is what is your paper really what is the central problem in your paper and what are you trying to solve for my central problem is that people are buying these native currencies they're being sold on exchanges like coinbase and gemini and binance who's recently gotten in some trouble um but they're not regulated right so when you buy a security in this country like a share of stock um there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through, right? There's there's restrictions on resale, certain disclosure that must be given, all these kinds of things. And the, the, the crypto people managed to create these blockchains, put the native token on there, and then people started exchanging dollars for them. And right now, at least, and we can talk about how it's being regulated. I think that may be something you want to get into later. But the idea is people are spending money to buy a lot of times an asset that they think is going to appreciate in value. And it looks a lot like what we do for stocks, but it's not a stock. So it's not regulated like that. It's almost like we call it something else. It's got some different properties. It's a new technology. And so we're kind of, I think, in the wild west of what do we do with this, right? There's a who regulates it? Should it be regulated? That you know, a lot of driving force behind cryptos is, you know, we don't we don't trust the people who are regulating these things, right? We don't trust the Federal Reserve who is monkeying around with the money and printing it or pulling it back as necessary. And so at least for Bitcoin, and you're right, they're all different, so it's hard to make generalizations. 
But at least for Bitcoin, the idea is like it works because the protocol works, the computer algorithm works, the, the whatever you want to call it, that works. And we don't need these central intermediaries. So at the same time, people take that and say, well, maybe we don't need any kind of regulation on that. It's self-regulating, right? So this, this is the central problem is what do we do about this new asset class that looks like it's been created out of thin air? And you mentioned that we're sort of in the Wild West um, in the regulatory space right now. And that's really fascinating. So can you talk about what sort of regulatory framework exists right now for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the framework that exists, and I teach securities regulation, and I don't know how many people listening to this have taken it, but the laws that we primarily use to regulate securities are from the 30s. Like they're from the New Deal, the 1930s, right? We're almost 100 years past this. Technology, like with flash trading and just the way things are done on Wall Street before you even get to blockchain is totally different. And we're trying to fit these things into really old laws. Now, the the law, the Howey test, which determines whether or not you have an investment contract, which makes it a security and brings you into all the SEC realm, like how that applies to digital currencies is something we'll probably talk about. But that is trying, it's almost like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. We're trying to put assets that weren't in mind or designed for this into that framework, but we're not sure whether we can. So I think what you get now is you get two things in terms of regulation. You get the a turf war between the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Commodities Future Trading Commission, right? The CFTC. And they're saying, which one of us should regulate? Nobody has a clear mandate on that. So what we're getting is fights over it. But then the way the regulation is working is what people are calling regulation by enforcement. It means we're not going to tell you the rules ahead of time on how you can sell these things, who you can sell them to. But once they're sold, if we don't like the way you do it, we're going to bring an enforcement action against you. And a lot of people are critical of that approach. I'm probably critical of that approach. I think it's we're living in a weird time, though, where we want to do something to make consumers feel protected, to kind of root out some of the bad actors like Sam Bankman-Fried and Doquan and these people um, without trying to kill the whole thing, right? Because I think, for example, Bitcoin is an incredibly useful thing. And, you know, it's look at its price. It's going up. It's going up. Because I think with the bank failures and stuff, people are saying there might be something here to this hard money on a blockchain, right? So I don't think we want to allow that innovation to kind of be stifled. But at the same time, we can't have Sam Bankman-Fried's running around stealing people's money. Right. Well, you know, you bring up a really good point there too. And I think this is something that when I've been reading your article, it's not something I had thought about before, but you discussed that we've got these securities regulations that are trying to maybe squid a, or fit a, a round peg in a square hole with cryptocurrency. But it raises the question, are cryptocurrencies securities? Sometimes, maybe other times not. Like there's an IPO process, there's an ICO process. Like what, what is the landscape there? And how would you describe that? 
It's a great question. The IPO process is what I teach in securities. And it's you got you've got quiet periods where you can't say anything. You get underwriters, you find you line up your investors, you submit disclosure documents, the SEC checks them. Like it's a whole big thing that costs millions of dollars and is pretty intensive. But it sometimes works. Like it, like I teach venture capital too. And we work, I don't know if y'all know Adam Newman and we work. They did a show on it. Um like he, the only thing that caught what was going on in that company is they went to an IPO and the underwriters and the professionals looked at it and said, this is all crap. And they pulled it and said, you know, you can't go forward with this. And that's kind of what exposed what was going on there. Well, we don't have that in an ICO. They say ICO, but it's really just like, we're going to sell people tokens and here's the website or thing you log into to buy them. And like Coinbase and things like that, I don't think they list ICOs because they're complete. They wait till a token is big enough and credible enough to put it on there. And that's after the ICO. I think the ICO is like airdrop tokens or something in exchange for money. And it's like to fund initial or further development of that blockchain. But it's not regulated like an IPO because like they're just saying, the issuers are saying, this doesn't apply to us. We don't have to comply with these procedures. So I think back to the Wild West thing, the way ICOs work, they just happen. And with that difference between an IPO and ICO, can you share a little bit about what regulatory proposals you suggest for cryptocurrency and how you decided those specific proposals should apply? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, I do, I, I've got a lot of thoughts on this and I've written, written a couple papers on it. The, the, I, I really like what I said in the one in Hastings, right? And, and that's the idea of like figuring out whether they're securities or not. And Zach, this is back to your question too. There's thousands of these things, these cryptocurrencies out there. Like, like some in my paper, one of my papers, I say they were like 1,600 at the time I look. I mean, it's it's an enormous number. Do I think a lot of those are securities? I do. I think there are a lot of securities in there. I think Bitcoin is on the other end of the spectrum, and we can talk about the tests and why. But um. I'm sorry, Victor, you're going to have to remind me of your question. I got on a tangent there. and No worries. Um, so without giving too much away, because we want listeners to listen, uh, to read your article, um, can you talk a little bit about what sort of regulatory proposals or frameworks that you suggest for cryptocurrency and how you decided on those specific proposals? Yeah. So even though, so, so the, the, I don't want to give away too much, but I, there, there is a great suggestion and it's not mine. It comes from two Yale law professors who are smarter than me. And they say that, um, let's kind of think about, and, and they don't apply this to cryptocurrency. I take it and apply it to cryptocurrency, but they talk about like, we got to have some better disclosures and disclose, like if we want to, the, a quick way to kill something, and I think it's happening with crowdfunding, which is another area I'm interested in. That's like selling securities, but there's a whole procedure for it. The problem with it is we give people disclosures and the evidence, and we try and scale them back and make them more useful, but nobody reads these things. Nobody reads them. And securities reg is the same way. The IPO disclosures, I mean, the informed parties read them, but you and I don't. 
So the question is, what do we do about that? And I do think that for cryptocurrencies, if they're securities, like I just don't think they're going to be offered at all because you cannot comply. You can't do an IPO um, if you're a, a, a blockchain company that's putting a native token out. There, there's no centralized party like you have. Um, you have all these things that don't really fit. And if you try and, and I actually have a student doing this this semester, he's writing a paper on, if you wanted to make an ICO like an IPO, could you do it? Like what the SEC requires and um, and then what could be given because, and who could give it? Like with a, with a company issuing securities, you have a board of directors, you have chief executives, you have all that you can do on management discussion and analysis section. There is no management of Bitcoin. Like there are some developers who keep the code up and things like that, but there's no centralized party who could even be tasked with doing disclosures. So I think the way it is right now, if we call them securities, they're not going to be issued. If we call them commodities, they will under this procedure where there's really nothing, no protections. So my suggestion is like, let's find an, a middle ground there and let's make some disclosures for crypto assets, whether or not they're securities. Let's maybe even get a new regulator in there and, and, and do some disclosures that work. And I think the devil's in the details and that's the warning box proposal from the Yale law professors that they use for consumer protection. Like when you're buying a computer and I kind of take it and put it in crypto and say, you know, this could work here. It's targeted. It's the right kind of disclosure and it might actually be useful to people. So I'm trying to kind of say not all these things can be the wild west, but at the same time, we don't want them to be like the shares of Apple stock. We got to find some intermediate ground. You know, it's funny you say that because we're in California, as you know, and it's the number of products that have like this disclosure on them that these this product is known to the state of California to cause, you know, X, Y, Z. And I remember when I moved here from Texas, you know, those disclosures make a difference. You, you're you walking into buildings, you're like, wait a second, what? Then you realize all the buildings have them. So you're like, okay, I'm, I'm a little desensitized, but um in in your you know in your world, how do you think that these disclosures and maybe this is a, a good question too. You know, some time has passed since you've written your article, and you, you've we've gotten some big headlines involving cryptocurrency. Has there been anything where you think where you have there been any major events where you thought, oh, I wish this proposal had been enacted, or oh, I wish I could have used some of the details that happened here. Uh, for analysis of my paper. Anything that, that maybe like comes to mind for you? Yeah, uh, two things. First, the, 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 the labels everywhere. I think you just illustrated disclosure perfectly. You get from Texas to California, you see one, you pay attention to it. When you see 100, you stop paying attention. So that's what securities is. It's 100. We add rules all the time, disclose this, disclose that, but then everything gets buried because it's too voluminous to know what actually matters. So mine kind of, tries to toe that line. Uh, in terms of current events, the Sam Bankman-Fried stuff, the FTX stuff, right? So let's say that was regulated under my proposal. There would be a warning box. And in that warning box, it would have to say, for example, um, FTT is a token we created and we're 
using it as collateral for these loans to a related firm. If people knew that, right? And here's another recent example, Silicon Valley Bank. It has nothing to do with crypto, but it's the same kind of things, right? If we knew the heart of the, the business model there, that this FTT token was created out of thin air, centralized and used, like marked as real money with a value that basically the company's given it, like people would know that that was something to stay away from. And I don't think anybody had that information until it all came out. If they had to comply with my proposal, right? I think they would have had to disclose or maybe they wouldn't have disclosed it, but then they would have been in clear violation of a known law rather than this after the fact, let's see what laws we can make stick to them. And with all these headlines and current events coming up in the news in the cryptocurrency world every day, in your writing process, how do you know when you're done writing a paper about cryptocurrency or a paper like this? And, you know, was it hard finding a stopping point with all these new current events? God, well, the funny thing is, you're right, because the law review process takes a long time. Um you know, I wrote this paper, what, two years ago or something, right? And so it wasn't hard to find a stopping point because all these things hadn't happened yet. So I kind of thought I was done. But now when I read back through it, I'm like, oh, I wish I would have said this and I wish I would have said that. So it is really hard. And the way I look at it is you just got to get it out there, right? And if it's remote, like everybody knows that this is a moving target and you're just discussing it as it exists and... And where you think it might go, and maybe that's outdated in a year. The technology is changing on this stuff all the time. And people, I was talking to a student of mine who really knows about the way these protocols work and things. And it's just, you, you try and pin something down and say, well, I think it should be regulated like this because this is how it's working. Then it changes the way it's working. And you're trying to, so it's law and tech trying to kind of keep up with each other and in terms of me, I mean, I just put my thing out there. I try and get it placed. We have a cycle for this. Then I kind of say, well, I've got some more to say, but I'm going to move it to the next article, right? To get a kind of body of work on it. Um, but you're right. If things change and you put something out two years previous, like you're kind of, I wish I could say this now. So it's hard. Well, yeah. there's always an opportunity to write another one, as you mentioned. And I, I like that because a lot of our listeners here are likely going to be students, maybe working on a student. No, I myself am working on a, a, a paper for my tax concentration. And I like that advice. Get it out there, get it finished. Because that's the hardest thing. The hardest part is just, you know, just do do the thing. Write it and and, and, you'll, and you'll find that stopping point. Is it the perfectionism thing that people, people are like, well, it's not perfect yet. And I'm like, you have a lot of things to do, right? It's <laughs> never going to be perfect. You, that doesn't mean to put out a, an unfinished product. But when you feel pretty good, you've got some review on it by mentors. Or in my case, I send it to colleagues and they say, well, I'd talk about it. I'm like, I'm feeling pretty good about this. And the, for me, the stages are SSRN comes first. You get it out there as a draft. It gets downloads. It gets mentioned and stuff. Then you try and place it in the law reviews. Then it goes in the law review. You've got that whole editing process in which, you know, I was pretty intensely editing this one up until the end. I mean, your editors were fantastic because I'm usually the easiest person to work with. I've got my re RAs have done all the footnotes, all the blue booking. And I'm like, here it is. You don't have much to do. But with this one, I kept tweaking and rewriting and changing things. And you guys were fantastic about it. But it's just the nature of the area. Like it was changing. So I had to change what I was saying, too. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, I think we, we, you know, like we said, we want, we want our readers to go check out your article. This is in volume 74 issue one. Darian, we cannot thank you enough. This has been, I, I mean, I've learned so much even just in, in chatting with you and um, yeah, just thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure guys. Um, I really appreciate your interest in the piece and the area and uh, I hope people listen. Great. All right. Well, we are going to move on to our next guest, but um, thanks again, Darian. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Moment, because one one of the major takeaways I had from Professor Ibrahim's article is that crypto can sometimes look like securities, but not always looks like like a security, and the regulation should kind of address that. You know, is if it's a security, we should regulate it like a security. If it's not, maybe we can we can alter the degrees of regulation. And this next article, you know, I think it's interesting too. They they look at how crypto responded to um, the coronavirus. And I'm curious, they proposed their own regulations as well. But I'm curious if we had had some of these proposals in place, how that would have looked differently. So really an interesting, um, interesting article, and I'm excited to chat with them. And let's go ahead and welcome Hadar and Rowie and hear what they have to say. We are so excited to have our second guest join us today, um, coming all the way from Germany and Israel. Uh, so a little bit of a time difference here, but we can't say thank you enough for for them for to them for lending us some of their time as we um, dive deeper into our overarching theme of discussing cryptocurrency. So our first guest, or we have two authors of, of this article, which is in volume 74, issue two, titled How Crisis Affects Crypto, Coronavirus as a Taste as a Test Case. And we have Hadar Jabotinsky of the Hadar Jabotinsky Center for Interdisciplinary Research of Financial Markets, Crises, and Technology. And then we have Rowi Sarel, Junior Professor of Private Law and Law and Economics at the Institute of Law and Economics at the University of Hamburg. Hadar and Rowi, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for the kind introduction. We are happy to be here today. Yeah, thank you. So I want to dive right in, and I think your title is is really kind of telling as to what the paper discusses. But we have how how crisis affects crypto. Can you give us just a brief overview of your article and and the problem that you present in the article and the significance of addressing this problem right now? Yeah, sure. So um, cryptocurrencies, I, I don't know how familiar uh, your listeners are with cryptocurrencies, but um, I guess by now uh, everybody's heard of Bitcoin and maybe other cryptocurrencies which are going around. Um, basically, uh, they are uh, online currencies or tokens which are traded on a technology called the blockchain. Um, they started off, so Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency uh, in 2009. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto announced to the world that he or she or them have solved the problem of double spending, um, which didn't allow for cryptocurrencies to exist before. Uh, and the way they solved the problem is by blockchain technology. Um, the market for cryptocurrencies grew to three trillion US dollars, and then it crashed. So today we checked the numbers again, and the market cap uh, right now is about one trillion dollars. Um, just to give you an approximation of how much that really is, 
Uh, $1 trillion is approximately how much Alphabet, the parent company of Google, is worth. Um, but uh, just as the value of Google is more than its technical market cap, the same is, uh, the same is true for the crypto market. Um, uh, so uh, basically our article, uh, we, we, we empirically tested how this market responded to the first financial crisis it encountered, and that is the coronavirus uh, crisis, which was not only a health crisis, but also a financial crisis. Um, and we wanted to see if cryptocurrencies were reacting the same way as the stock market, or maybe there was a difference. Um, I think the significance, the second part of your question, why, why, why should we address this problem now and why, why is it still interesting? Uh, I think that lately, probably most of your listeners have heard uh, about the recent financial cra uh, crashes of the banks. So SVB and Signature, and before that, the crypto exchange FTX. Um, so I think uh, our article is still very relevant today because it gives regulators kind of empirical evidence um, with regards to sy how systemic, uh, how systemically important is this market to the regular uh, financial markets. Um, also in parallel, you know, regulation is already forming. There's the executive order uh, of the president, bills in the United States, and of course, Mika in the European Union, um, with which is supposed to be approved by the end of this month. Um, so as regulators are still figuring out how to regulate this market, I think uh, basing it on some empirical research is critical in order to get the regulation right. Definitely. And I, you know, you, you bring up some very interesting points there, particularly, I was excited to have you on the podcast um, because, you know, we are located here in San Francisco where Silicon Valley bank is a major tenant and um, was a major tenant of this community. And so I was curious to hear, you know, and I'd be curious to hear, but we can get into this later, um, how some of your analysis has impacted how you're viewing these current events. But before we dive into some of your findings, um, I, you know, your analysis focuses on the days that predate the declaration of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I thought that was really interesting because you're, 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 or sorry, the, the days of declaration of the COVID-19 pandemic. I thought that was really interesting. Can you elaborate on how you chose this data set and, and the period of time for what your analysis kind of focuses on? Yes. Yeah, so, um, Ray, do you want to take this one or should yeah, I? I'll, I'll take this one. Thanks. Um, okay. So, I mean, what we are interested is uh, in this paper, not how the regulator responded, but rather how the emergence of the crisis affected the crypto market. And we all know that COVID was um, one big mess, so to say, which started with this outbreak of the disease and was directly followed by a lot of panic and many different policy responses all around the globe. So if you start looking at the time where policy responses were already in place, it is very difficult to disentangle if what you're seeing empirically is a result of the interventions or a result of the crisis itself. So we thought that by limiting the, the study to the initial period up until the declaration of COVID as a pandemic will allow us to sort of get a much cleaner uh, view of how the, the outbreak of the crisis uh, had the effect. Got it. That's a really interesting way of looking at 
research and, and looking at setting parameters. You know, a lot of our readers are are um, are maybe working on journal notes or thinking about pursuing different ways of of writing ac- academic scholarships. So um, it's really interesting to hear you kind of define that data set and then use that for your analysis. So with that in mind, can you ref? Can you give us um, like a preview into what the three main findings were? And and the three main findings that you're able to pull from this data of looking at, you know, the COVID-19 having an impact on cryptocurrency and how the markets are reacting. Sure. So um, the exercise was more or less as follows. We took the 100 leading cryptocurrencies and tried to correlate the uh, prices and trading volume of those cryptocurrencies with the number of COVID cases and COVID deaths. Uh, where we wanted to see, so when there are more deaths and more cases, how does the market respond? And uh, what we find, as you said, three things. So the first thing is that uh, in this initial outbreak period, the prices of cryptocurrencies on average went up. So we we call this basically a crypto rush. So as the, the COVID pandemic started, people started buying cryptocurrencies, leading to more demand, which led to a higher price. Um, now, well, maybe we'll talk about exactly why that is later on, but just as a, as a, as a taste, um, our interpretation of this is that people were holding on to an incorrect belief that was prevalent at the time that cryptocurrencies are a safe haven. So whenever you get into trouble in the stock market, you switch to cryptocurrencies and then your money is safe. And what we find uh, is that's not really the case. So people started buying cryptocurrencies and, and then later on, unfortunately, those crashed as well. So this was our first finding. Our second finding was that if you if you look away from the average for a second at, at the trend, you see that this crypto rush was uh, at the beginning. So at the beginning, everybody started buying cryptocurrencies. But once you got into, it was more or less 50,000 COVID cases, the trend reversed. And everybody started selling off their uh, cryptocurrencies. And we spent a lot of time in the paper trying to explain exactly why why that is, uh, because there are many different reasons. Uh, One reason which I guess uh, would be obvious to people engaging in finance research is that sometimes we have these so-called pump and dump schemes. So you have these people exploiting uh, different panic by uh, pumping the price up. And once everybody's in, they sell off all of their tokens, uh, cash out, and everybody else's holdings drop down to the minimum. And uh, the third thing we found is, we so we try to compare whether deaths have the same kind of impact on the market as cases, uh, because although both of these are proxies for how bad the pandemic is, we figured that people might respond differently. Uh, for example, I might hear uh, some of these sayings at the beginning, COVID is a hoax, and therefore it's just a flu. So if nobody dies, maybe I shouldn't care. Whereas on the other hand, you had all these pictures coming in of, of people in China and in Italy uh, dropping dead. Um, so you would think that maybe deaths had a stronger uh, effect. And indeed, that's what we found. So if you look at the effect size, the impact of every new death on cryptocurrencies was much larger than every new case. Wow, that I think that's really, the, the pump and dump scheme was the most interesting thing to for, for me to read about, because I've heard about I'd heard about those schemes like financially, but reading about that in terms of cryptocurrency and how it it kind of the the change that happened, you know, specifically as you were discussing um, as cases rose and as deaths rose was was really interesting to read about. So your article discusses the four categories of market failure. 
excessive market power, information asymmetry, externalities, and behavioral market failures, but indicates that the most fundamental problem you're finding points to is one of externalities. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, so as a law and economics person, um, for us, the connection between law and, and the market failures is perhaps the most interesting part. Um, but this uh, finding that we found of this um, people first buying and then selling might be consistent with very different market failures. Um, so if you think about market power, usually we think about monopolies. So monopolies are selling a low quantity for a high price, and that's why we don't like them. But that's not really the case here. Uh, the same thing about asymmetric information. Usually we are concerned that maybe some assets are unable to be sold, what we call adverse selection. Uh, but that's also not the case here. Um, but there is some uh, connection between these and, and the third one, which is one of the possibilities that we identify is that um, because it is very difficult to know who committed the transaction uh, in cryptocurrencies, we cannot rule out that some of these large investors, the so-called whales, just decided to move around the money at once. And that's only possible if A, you have enough cryptocurrencies to do that, so you have market power, and B, nobody knows you're doing that, so there's asymmetric information. Um, but as you said, the more interesting part is externalities, and we identify two types of these. Um, the, the first one has to do with what Hadam mentioned, which is systemic risk. So systemic risk is this, uh, of course, this risk that the whole system collapses. Usually we talk about it in this connection of too big to fail, so one of, if these banks starts collapsing, maybe this destabilizes the whole system. And um, once there is a crisis and everybody starts moving around their money, the externality is that when I trade, if I, let's say, sell my cryptocurrency, I do not care that I'm destabilizing the system at the moment. I just want to get rid of my cryptocurrency and I want somebody else to buy it. But if everybody sells at the same time, uh, just as if you have a bank run and everybody withdraws their deposit at the same time, you, you get more systemic risk. And so our main concern was that this is, might be going on, um, especially because we found some anecdotal evidence that um, the cryptocurrencies is interconnected with traditional markets. So there was some co-movement with uh, the S&P 500. And therefore, it's not just an isolated thing, but rather you're destabilizing the whole system. Uh, the second point regarding externalities was that um, there, was, there was some evidence that uh, before the pandemic, criminals were using cryptocurrencies to move around cash because it was an easy way not to get detected. So it could also be that during the pandemic, it, it was criminals basically driving these transactions. And um, the criminals also do not care about destabilizing the system, nor do they care about the fact that their crime hurts people. So that's also a, a type of externality. Um, and, and finally, these pump and dump schemes, so the, from the perspective of those causing the schemes, um, they don't care about the investors they're hurting. So that's a sort of externality as well. Well, you know, I hear some really interesting things in that. And it's kind of going back to what Hadar mentioned at the beginning of, of being able to apply some of your research into, into more recent maybe crises, specifically the, you know, the financial, the bank failures that have been occurring lately. But I'm curious without giving too much away from the article, can you discuss the regular, regulatory lessons that you can draw from this? And then even it, even how you would apply those to, to current events, if, if applicable. Now you can take that one. 
Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, there are a few, and I don't want to give uh, everything away, uh, you know, to your listeners, because we still want them to go and read the paper. Uh, but I will discuss, I think the most, for me, one of the most interesting findings um, relates to externalities and systemic risk. Um, so, uh, we need to think about the interconnectedness of our findings show that, uh, the crypto market can become interconnected with the regular, uh, financial markets. And actually during a time of crisis, this becomes, uh, a major weak point of the system. So if we try to stabilize, you know, banks and insurance companies and all these large financial institutions, but then we have too big to fail crypto exchanges, banks, wallets, whatever, um, we might be missing on something really important. You know, that fail failure can actually lead to failures in our regular traditional financial markets. So we need to start thinking about that. Um, <clears throat> And actually, we uh, um, also in another paper that we co-authored, Roy and I co-authored another paper also with uh, Israel Klein, we talk about the need for global blockchain regulation. It's not something that we think can be uh, done on a local level because blockchain is global and crypto is global. So we need some sort of coordinating mechanisms between the regulators worldwide um, and I would say, first of all, you know, do, try not to, if you're a regulator, try not to let uh, banks and insurance companies and all these large financial institutions um, invest uh, important money that they can't risk to lose in crypto. Um, try to reduce the connectedness between the uh, two markets. Um, uh, and uh, maybe think about also stop loss mechanisms for when the crypto market starts to uh, crash uh, or maybe other types of interventions, which we mentioned in our paper. Um, and uh, again, I always think about, I, I'm a, I, I, I research, uh, I'm financial regulation and new technologies. That's my main focus. And I always like to think about money running in the system. It's similar to water running in your, uh, in, in your uh, uh, sewage system at home. So if you protect very well the kitchen, but then you have a leak in your bathroom, the water is just going to go out there. So when we think about regulating the financial system, the regular financial system, we should also consider how do we want to regulate the shadow banking system, which cryptocurrencies are part of, in order to avoid systemic risk. And I think um, the regulatory attention should be on that as well. Wow, that's, that's a lot of really great information there. And I think, I think if anything... I feel lucky that I've already read your article, but if I was listening in for the first time, I know that I would, with everything going on right now in the world, I would be heading to the HLJ website to try and download the article and read it for myself. So I hope our leaders, our listeners will, will do that as well. Um, so we've got one, we've got time for one last question. And, and this is really more a question about writing process. We've got a lot of, you know, uh, students that are going to be listening in and we've talked about this briefly, but 
what is it like taking on such a novel endeavor? I mean, this, to our knowledge and your knowledge, is the first article to address the events of the crypto market in the early days of the, pand- of the pandemic. So how do you approach such a novel like research topic? And were there any challenges you had to overcome in this process? Oh, sure. Um, so first of all, we decided to do this when the pandemic just started. Wow. Um, I'm a single mom by choice. And my little girl was two years old when the pandemic uh, erupted. And Roe is also a parent of two small children, and he's a very involved father. Um, so basically, we found ourselves right. So the kids were home, right? Because there's no school or kindergarten going on. So we, we found ourselves riding into the night, you know, st- sitting down at from from nine uh, until two three in the morning when our eyes closed to write this paper was really crazy what was going on at home um scholars and probably all professionals with young kids at home it was very very challenging and 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 well done to all the parents out there who managed to survive this and push through um so that was uh one first major challenge that we have and the second challenge um, relates uh, more to the topics which uh, Roy and I like to research. So we are always into a new technology. Right now we have a few papers, ChatGPT and other um, really uh, interesting new technologies, AI and so on. Um, and crypto also, as well as AI and, and ChatGPT and so on, it's, it's, it's a moving target. Um, regulation proposals start coming out from everywhere and it was during the writing process so every time you need to uh, rewrite parts and and address and be on top of things so but that's part of the fun right we, we also enjoy that that's that's great Roe, did you have any anything to add in that as well um sure um well first of all you know, if you write such a thing alone, it's already tough enough. If you have somebody with you there, a partner in crime, so to say, that, that I think is really helpful in these difficult moments um, in, in many aspects. So you can double check each other, make sure that there are no mistakes. You come up with new ideas, brainstorming. Um, if you're working with somebody that has complementary skills like Hadar and myself, so I, we are both law and economics people, but I come more from the economic side and the empirical side, and she comes more from the regulation side that really allows to take a project that is uh, basically unexplored and, you know, everybody pours their own knowledge inside. Uh, and then, of course, I, I fully agree about COVID. So I, we, uh, my, my wife was working at a, at a hospital at the time, so I was on uh, on dead patrol. Wow. Uh, but um, it, it was worth it because we thought that this is really important. So when we, we were doing this, it was not only interesting, but we thought, you know, somebody needs to look into this um and 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 make sure that, that 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 knowledge is out there. Definitely, definitely. Well, I think that's a great place for us to to wrap up. I think we've we've given our listeners just the right amount of information on your article, and um, I'm excited. I hope, they, for... I hope they're interested enough to to go and read it now. <laughs> me as well. Me as well. And maybe um, also let us know what they thought. You know, they can find us online, and we would be happy to hear comments or suggestions for future research. We're always happy to hear thoughts. So definitely, definitely. And I can't wait to see your articles on AI and chat GPT. So um, sounds like some great stuff in the works. 
But I just you want can, to say you can you can already find the first two. I think one Roe has one alone, and we have one together, which are already on SSRN. So if you look us up, um, you can probably find papers on all kinds of interesting topics. Yeah. Or and, and of course, them. and and of course, my one is forthcoming also at the now UC Law San Francisco Journal. So I hope that the readers maybe maybe we'll talk about it in the next podcast. Yes. If not, of course, as that I said, uh, feel free to look it up. Um, Definitely, definitely. Well, I can't wait. We we feel very lucky to have you and for joining us at both as parents late at night in your respective homes. So thank you again. And uh, check out um, check out their article, How Crisis Affects Crypto, Coronavirus as a Test Case, Volume 74, Issue 2 of Hastings Law Journal. Thanks so much again. Thank you so much for thank having you. us again. Wow, that was a really great conversation, Victor. I mean, I think one reason I'm really happy we had them on the podcast and one reason I think their article is so unique is that, I mean, to my knowledge, and I think to theirs as well, this was really the first time that anyone looked at the, how the coronavirus affected cryptocurrency from this like analytical framework and this deep dive into the research of just really how crypto responded. So a really great article. I hope I hope our, our listeners will, will check it out and read the full article. Um, and just some some really great insight that we got from from Hadar and Roy. Yes, thank you, Hadar and Roy, for taking the time to speak with us today. And we're sad our third interview couldn't happen because of scheduling conflicts. Um, our third interview would have been with Zan Packin, and her article is "Financial Inclusion Gone Wrong: Securities and Crypto Assets Trading for Children." And this article appears uh, in Volume seventy four, Issue two. And it looks at the search for financial education for children um, and to educate them on crypto and then proposes that regulatory schemes that result in consumer protection and investor protection is actually a better solution. And it looks at the factors that play into a better regulatory scheme in crypto, crypto and why that's a better solution than financial orientation for children. Yeah, one thing that, that she brings up in her article, and I'm sad we couldn't have her on to talk about it, is the gamification of like crypto and securities in general. I mean, you've got like these apps where trading these different, you know, assets is like a game where people feel like maybe almost it almost like it doesn't feel real. And just how that trickles down and, and affects our children. Maybe they'll become um more financially literate. You know, maybe not. But an interesting article that 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 she kind of goes through some of these um issues and solutions. And I and I hope I hope our listeners will will go and read the article. Sad, sad again, we couldn't have her on. And finally, we want to thank all of the authors who submitted and were published in the new UC Law SF Journal, um, Darian Ibrahim, Hadar Jabotinsky, Roe Sorrell, and Nizan Packin. Yeah. And thank you to also to the Volume 74 e-board and editors. Yeah, yeah. I think we've had a really great day of interviews and, and I'm I'm grateful for all of all of the um, authors who submitted to our entire journal, but specifically to the authors that, um, you know, were able to take the time to, um, to, you know, be involved in the podcast and, and contribute more information to this like ever changing um, topic of cryptocurrency. So I hope our our listeners will go and and check out a few of these articles in the journal and maybe some other other articles um, that, that we've published. But as Victor said, a huge thank you to the volume 74 um, uh, editors and, and e-board 
who have really made all the hard work of getting these articles published happen. So I'm excited to see what, what Victor does with the podcast next year. And thanks for joining me, Victor. Thanks. All right. Well, we, um, we, thank, we thank you again for listening and um, we look forward to podcast number three next year. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>